Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. I cannot overstate this, but rapid warming in the Arctic is profoundly affecting the more than 400,000 indigenous people who live there, and in many instances is upending their entire way of life. Climate change is deeply disrupting the Arctic. New report from NOAA finds... Rapid oil and gas expansion poses an existential threat to the world's forests. Plus, the world is gradually shifting towards a greener future in a bid to safeguard our planet from the ongoing climate crisis. European Union agrees to enact world's first carbon import tariff. All of those agreements and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The evidence is clear. Human-caused climate change is transforming the snowy and icy Arctic into a warmer, wetter environment. You mean a delightful golf lover's paradise? Plus oil drilling. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, golf lover's paradise and oil drilling aside, (laughs) this new report from NOAA on the Arctic is really, really disturbing. Yes, it is. Human-caused climate change is destabilizing the fragile Arctic with consequences for indigenous peoples, wildlife, and extreme weather around the planet. The new Arctic report card released this week by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration finds that the past seven years in the Arctic have been the hottest seven years since at least 1900. That is fueling warmer, wetter, and stormier conditions and and accelerating the loss of sea ice, impacting wildlife and the people that depend on it. Does that mean it was this warm back in the 1900s? No, that means that that's as far back as records go. Got it. The Arctic is warming at a faster rate than the rest of the world, and scientists say that, in turn, is weakening the jet stream, causing extreme weather systems in the northern hemisphere to stall, intensifying their effects, like Hurricane Harvey and the deadly record-breaking heat waves in China and the Pacific Northwest. So what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, more than 140 people have died in catastrophic flooding after rains flooded the capital, Kinshasa. The country's president in Washington on Tuesday for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit said the torrential rains are a consequence of wealthy nations' climate pollution and their failure to act to cut their emissions. Sounds about right. He called on rich nations to fulfill their pledges to assist developing nations with funding to adapt to climate impacts so that those developing nations don't have to turn to oil and gas exploration to raise revenue. Which is, in theory, what they agreed to at the recent U.N. climate conference, but they got to work out the details. It may take a while. Oh, yes. And that was the topic of a new report released this week at the U.N. Biodiversity Conference in Montreal. The new analysis from nonprofit Earth Insight warns that the world's two largest rainforests in the Amazon and the Congo basins are under accelerating threat of rapid oil and gas expansion. The report finds fossil fuel development poses an existential threat to the world's forests, biodiversity, and millions of indigenous people living in areas 
is slated for new oil and gas development. And it matters because rainforests serve a crucial planetary function by absorbing a significant chunk of humanity's carbon emissions. At the conference, Elizabeth Wathuti of Kenya's Green Generation Initiative called for protecting nature and its ecosystem services that are critical to preserving climate stability. We need nature to be at the front and center. When we destroy nature, it means that we are destroying our own life support system. In the process, we are destroying ourselves as humanity. But some good news. The European Union Parliament struck a deal this week to establish the world's first carbon import tariff called a carbon border adjustment tax. The EU's proposal would slap a tariff on imports of carbon-intensive products like steel and cement to prevent European industries from being undercut by cheaper goods made in countries with weaker environmental rules. Good, like us, for example. Exactly. Effectively fighting climate change through global trade, which would also pressure Europe's trading partners to decarbonize their own industries. Good. Competition. Free market. I like it. E&E News reports that congressional Republicans are interested in Europe's carbon border adjustment mechanism in the U.S., but as a way to counter China, not because they suddenly support climate action. Correct, because they're isolationists. And finally, good news. The City Council of Los Angeles has voted to ban the sale and distribution of styrofoam products, which are not biodegradable and not recyclable. The council also expanded the city's ban on single-use plastic bags to combat the cost scourge of plastic pollution. Well, it'll be an apocalypse here in L.A. before long. At least that's what they'll tell us on Fox News. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. In no dread. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. The law requires that interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the nation. It was a bright blue sky over the White House on Wednesday as we gathered for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. Take a listen to me on the lawn at the White House as I reflected in the moment of how I was feeling at that historic signing of the Respect for Marriage bill. Hey everybody, uh, talking to you from the White House, we're about to witness the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. And I just want to share with all of our friends, our partners, um, all of our collaborators who work so hard to make this day happen, how happy I am, how filled with joy uh, that we've arrived at this day where marriage equality is, is a reality. Just such an important moment for the whole country as a whole as we continue to expand rights and dignity for all, but also very personal for me and so many other uh same-sex couples as well as interracial couples who felt our full dignity was being reaffirmed uh, yesterday by the actions of the White House and the Congress.
For months, Interfaith Alliance worked in partnership with an unprecedented coalition of religious leaders and activists to demand respect for LGBTQI and interracial couples. And together with so many others, we got it done. On this week's show, we'll be looking at the significance of this achievement and the specifics of the legislation that pertain to religious freedom and LGBTQ rights. And think about the work that lies ahead for this growing, morally driven movement for inclusion and equality. I'll talk with the Reverend Tracy Blackman, Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ, an unwavering support of the Respect for Marriage Act and the communities it affirms. You'll also hear from Mary Bonato, Senior Attorney at GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, and Katie Joseph, Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, both brilliant attorneys who helped push the Respect for Marriage Act across the finish line. Mary's been a leader in advancing the rights of LGBTQ people under the law. She was one of three attorneys who argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in Oberfeld, arguing state bans on same-sex marriage should be ruled unconstitutional. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guests. It was essential to break down the God versus gay narrative that conservatives have been tirelessly fomenting for years. And a broad coalition of diverse faith leaders and groups did just that as they worked together for passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. The legal strategy was just as essential, especially around the religious freedom amendments that were attached to the bill. I wanted to look at the lessons learned, and there is literally nobody better to talk to about this than Mary Bonato, senior attorney at GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, and my colleague Katie Joseph, director of policy and advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Mary, Katie, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're all thawing out from last yesterday being <laughs> on the lawn at the White House, but this, you know, this was this week was a historic week. It was a it was an impressive moment and I would love to start with both of yours just emotional resonance for the moment uh, before we dive into kind of some of the legal and, and social ramifications. How did it feel to be there? Mary, why don't you start? You know, I um, I was ecstatic and I was remembering back in 1996 when DOMA, the Federal Defense Energy Act, was signed by around midnight by President Clinton. And to think about this celebration of marriages and families and children and couples um, as, you know, a core American value, as about right, about justice, about love. All of that was so inspiring to actually see 
that at this point we have harmonized technically the Supreme Court, the Congress of the United States and the executive branch with the presidency, all saying, yeah, these marriages are here to stay and they're important and they're entitled to dignity and respect and equality is a fundamental American value. Like, hey, it was a great day. <laughs> I love that. That is so beautiful. Uh, we're going to get into this more, but I, one of the things that kind of slapped me in the face when we started talking about this with uh, with Katie Joseph, who I, I definitely want to hear from next, but was the Doma was still on the books. Yes. On, you know, and, and I was like, what? How could that be? You know, but Doma was still on the books. Katie, how did it feel like to you to, to, to be there? Well, Mary used the word celebration, and I think that is the best possible way to describe the mood on the South Lawn yesterday. It was incredible to see young Gen Z activists who had flown in from Florida, who were leading the walkouts around the Don't Say Gay Bill, to activists who have been working on this for quite literally decades. Um, they're to celebrate this incredible accomplishment with families and partners and their own children and grandchildren um, as well. Um, this is a major moment um, and it did, not, it did not come easily um, and it did not come quickly. Um, so it's really important that we are taking the time to, um, to celebrate together. Yeah. Mary, I know you have a particular vantage point on the construction of this bill and then also thinking through and this is very much has to do with our work at Interfaith Alliance like the role that religion played for good and also you know not so good in the construction of this and how we navigated that Mary could you offer us some sort of big uh, entry into that conversation yes and I'll just raise a couple of Big picture points, you know, one is with respect to this law, this now law, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, which was um, first drafted by LGBTQ and other advocates, but really under the leadership of the office of Representative Nadler and his key staff person, Heather Sawyer, who brought us all together. And, and this was in the time when the, the Defense of Marriage Act was in effect. The federal government was actively disrespecting marriages um, from people in Massachusetts, for example, and then from Iowa and other states. Um, and to remedy that, to say, like, you can't have somebody, you know, pay into Social Security over a lifetime and then have them show up, as one of my clients did, at a Social Security office after his spouse dies and say, you don't count. You just can't do that. <laughs> um, what, what year are we talking about when you were, when you you can recall the, with, with Representative Nadler? 2010. 2010. So I'm doing math. 12 years ago, that is over a decade's worth of work. Yes. However, the bill had to be changed a lot because, you know, this gets to your other big picture point, which is that the law has changed because of the challenges to the Defense of Marriage Act federal piece that culminated in the Windsor decision. You know, that federal non-recognition had to go away and the federal government did what it is supposed to do, which is respect marriages that are valid where they're celebrated. So not only did that um, benefit, if you will, um, provide the same protections to people who were married in Massachusetts or in Connecticut or in Iowa or in New York ultimately, but it also meant that people who had married in those states would be respected um, when they returned home to Texas, when they returned home to Arizona. And you started seeing, um, even though we had states that were not allowing same-sex couples to marry, 
you started seeing those states have to grapple with the fact that they had married a same-sex couple and had to make adjustments. Uh, how you file your taxes in the state, you know, usually follows your federal. So you got to maybe allow that now. So it was a transformative period in a, in a lot of respects. But then Obergefell itself in 2015, you know, obviously made a difference in terms of making marriage the law of the land for all states, regardless of their amendments or laws in place. But then the second question in Obergefell had to do with whether marriages are respected from state to state. And Obergefell said, yes, they should be. You know, it was really tied to the marriage decision itself. But this bill does what, if I can just skip ahead for a second, because this is also about DOMA, um, what this bill does is has the Congress build expressly on its own power in the Constitution to say that it can prescribe by general laws the effect of acts, records, and judicial proceedings. And we have here the Congress saying we are prescribing that the effect of a valid marriage that is valid where it is celebrated is that it will be respected by states and state governments, by the, fed, the feds and the federal government and federal agencies. It doesn't reach private parties. You know, as Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin says, it's a humble bill, but it's also a mighty one. And it means that at least when it comes to uh, legal protections offered by states and responsibilities, you should be able to expect those to be in place no matter where you live. Mary, let me or, or, or Katie can answer this. Did we was the urgency around this bill um, triggered by Dobbs? Where the threat, I mean, because because, you know, the Supreme Court has already made that explicit, but then um, Dobbs made it seemed, if not imminent, possibly or predictably in the future that that very right that they had once granted could be grabbed away. And we saw that, of course, with Roe v. Wade. So I'm just curious, am I getting that right? Katie, do you want to start? Sure. So when the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision that rolled back the right to access abortion as a matter of privacy, we saw in it a concurring decision written by Justice Thomas making clear that, of course, access to abortion is not the only um, type of um, service or aspect of privacy that has been recognized by the court, and at least from Justice Thomas's perspective, should potentially be reconsidered. Um, so we actually see uh, in the within the umbrella of privacy rights, marriage, personal um, intimate relationships um, and activities, access to contraception, um, as well as marriage. Um, and so this really raised an alarm bell um, for folks who have been working on this for a long time. Um, we've known that Supreme Court decisions um, are hugely impactful, um, but don't exist in a vacuum. There is always the possibility that they may be revisited. And so right. as <laughs> we certainly saw, I mean, you know, the, we have a very right. strong case in point. And I thought just to your point about uh, uh, Justice Thomas, like the fact that his decision was referenced, I think by President Biden, you know, I mean, shows the, 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 the kind of um, specter that that created for for many people uh, who were working on this bill. I'm sorry for interrupting. I, I just thought that was a really interesting moment when he was quoting a Supreme Court justice as a case in point on why we needed to do this work. 
And I and think what what's relevant here is that, um, you know, judicial opinions build on each other. And so there's a line of cases around the right to privacy and what that means in all these different aspects of our personal lives um, that built on a lot of the work that came um, in the years leading up to and after the Roe decision came down. And so from a legal perspective, um, there's a there's a red flag um, that's raised when you pull out some of the foundational law um, that has provided the framework for all of these other things, including including marriage. Mm. And if I can just add to that briefly, even before the Dobbs concurrence, there have been statements usually issued in conjunction with um, dissents from the court's refusal to take a case and grant review in a case from Justices Thomas and Alito complaining bitterly about Obergefell. I mean, there's, of course, their initial dissents in Obergefell as well to point to. But this was a new level. This was coming in the context of the reversal of a fundamental right with a incredibly rigid historical analysis in which the autonomy and personal rights of women and trans and non-binary people who were pregnant counted for nothing. So yeah. this was to have this concurrence then was a shot across the battle. It was not nothing. This was a new level. And I think it was appropriate, therefore, for the Congress to take the step it did. The law of the land remains Obergefell. Should there be any challenge, it should be rejected because Obergefell is the law of the land. And should it proceed, Obergefell was correctly decided on both liberty grounds, due process, as well as equality. So this was an opinion, Dobbs that is, that was framed up by the court um, as a due process liberty privacy decision. But I think people forget that one of the foundational cases in this area around marriage is Loving versus Virginia, which is the best named case ever, which struck down the remaining state bans on interracial marriage, which had existed at the time of the Collins in many places and continued, you know, Virginia, as the president referenced yesterday, had a criminal law in effect. Um, so this bill, again, I think appropriately, you know, said we should grab this moment. This is terrifying to people. And it's not just a concern of destabilizing married same-sex couples and really LGBTQ people generally by suddenly saying you don't count anymore for purposes of equality and liberty but also to say that when it comes to race, ethnicity, and national origin, that we are not going to tolerate discrimination um, in those areas either. What's your first thought about the way this bill dealt with religious freedom issues? Like, what can we learn from it going forward writ large for our society? And I know that's an enormous question, but I just want to hear what your first thoughts on, because what I'm determined to work with coalitions across the board is like religious freedom can no longer be the first thought of religious freedom should not be that how can I discriminate <laughs> and that just feels really important to me but I but but I also like you know I know that's so subjective all that kind of stuff but but what what how do you understand the the interplay between a law and religious freedom that can help like help us move forward and allow people to believe what they believe and think what they think, but also not be used it as a as a bludgeon against others. Mary, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a tough one, and I'm going to continue to reflect on this because I 
it's obviously not every day that you see a law like this pass the Congress. So it's a very important question. Um, so I have two thoughts. One is um, Professor Doug Laycock, who, you know, incredibly respected religion, religious liberty scholar, you know, joined with some others to support the Respect for Marriage Act. And in that letter acknowledged that we're not, our nation is not at a place where you can just say religious liberty always wins. It'll we always be in that camp, whatever that may be, always get what we want, as though there are no other rights involved and no other people and no other interests. That in fact, we are dealing with two crucial interests and that this bill was a path forward for acknowledging, acknowledging both of those interests. There are people, of course, who disagree vehemently, who feel like this is a Trojan horse. It doesn't protect religious liberty, et cetera, et cetera. But it acknowledges the concerns. It acknowledges the state of the law. Um, you know, again, the status quo bill piece. And in thinking about it a little further, I mean, I, this is not a new thought, but it, it feels newly invigorated, is that whole line about, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. And so when I see the National Association of Evangelicals and, um, you know, the Union of Orthodox Judaism, if I'm saying that correctly, and the LDS Church saying, we want to respect the law and our, and our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and we also want to have our right to have the marriages that we will solemnize in our faith. I start feeling the the Caesar God thing going on, um, and I I don't know how far that would go, um, but I am very intrigued by that possibility. And again, to the extent, just to say, to the extent that this bill helped people to feel reassured that this bill was not going to be used to pose that existential threat, then fantastic. I'm not sure how much of a model that is going forward, but that's exactly what I want to think about. You just gave me the sermon that I need to write, and I'm going to give you proper credit. I'm a, you know, I'm a preacher. And so, like, I think that I've actually, like, that has been a scripture passage that I've been wondering, like, is that, could that be teased out? So thank you for um, offering that, that question. Like, really, like, we can live in a society and figure out how to be our, uh, you know, even when we conflict, we need to understand we're living in a society. And and how can we not fray our society completely um, because of our religious beliefs? Katie, can you bring us home here? Solve all the problems now with your statement, please. <laughs> I'll echo Mary. You know, Interfaith Alliance works on an inclusive vision of religious freedom. And in all of the work that we do, we're conscious that Freedom of belief is one right in a, in a larger constellation of rights that are protected under the Constitution. And so the ability to, to hold the religious views that you do or the non-religious views that you do for plenty of secular folks, freedom of belief is, is crucially important. Um, it requires that all of us um, respect the ability of others to do the same. And I think in the in the process and moving the Respect for Marriage Act forward, we saw some of this play out in real time. Um, we saw these much more um, far reaching amendments that have would that would have taken the bill off course and turned it into something quite different, um, frankly, fail. 
Um, and we saw members, what, what I would consider far-right members of the Senate, attempt to push their, their colleagues to, to sign on to their view of what religious freedom means, and then get very far. Um, so if we need um, a, a moment of encouragement through this process, even though um, some amendments were necessary to get this across the finish line, ultimately um, the, the view of the religious right of those far right members of the Senate who wanted to enshrine religious freedom as a license to discriminate under the banner of this law, um, they were not successful. It was, it was the very broad coalition of LGBTQ equality advocates, faith-based advocates, business leaders, and so many more who saw this as a question of equal treatment under the law and a way to respect the, the essential rights and dignity of all of us to exist in public life um, under the banner of respect for marriage um, yeah. in federal yeah. law. So yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is a really big win for, for folks who have been working on this for a long time and also for those of us who are thinking ahead about what religious freedom might look like within the larger context of constitutional protections going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I just before we before we end, I just want to acknowledge, uh, Katie, all of your amazing work in organizing faith groups, huge array of faith groups. I think we had, you know, literally in the end, hundreds of faith groups sign on to letters in order to say, you know, no, you're not going to speak for the faith community when you come at it from that angle. In fact, we represent millions and millions and millions of people from across faith groups and and acknowledging that, you know, with the work of of others with, uh, you know, we brought new people into that coalition of people saying, like, this is not going to be who we are going forward. So. Katie, I want to thank you um, uh, on behalf of everybody, everybody on that day for the important role you played and that all of us, you know, that, that this was a group effort. And Mary, so much gratitude for all of your work in this over decades and decades. Um, and we just we appreciate it. Um, Mary Bonato is senior attorney at LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Katie Joseph is director of policy and advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Thank you both so much for all of your work and for being with us here today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you for your work. We need to take another break, but up next, the Reverend Tracy Blackman, Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ. And later, more clergy reactions to the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. You'll hear the thoughts of Father James Martin. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcript, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for a time such as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. What role do nonprofit hospitals play in our broken and callous healthcare system? How are their actions jeopardizing patient care? 
To find out, we spoke to filmmaker Sandra Alvarez, director of the new documentary Inhospitable, which tells the story of patients and advocates as they fight for their lives and take on a billion dollar hospital system. What was the most surprising was the nonprofit hospital side. First, that the majority of hospitals in this country are nonprofits. You think of the word nonprofit, as they said in the film, Little Sisters of the Poor, right? But these were hospitals where they had gleaming, huge lobbies and grand pianos and marble lobbies hobbies and art. And it was just really interesting to me trying to figure out where is all the money going that we're paying these nonprofits and what are they doing to provide for their community, which of course is the main reason that they get these tax breaks and these tax benefits. So how are they benefiting the community beyond, you know, obviously providing really good health care, which is also what for-profit hospitals do. What I started to realize was there isn't really that big of a difference. As far as the experts I interviewed and the community advocates and community leaders, I kept hearing the same thing, which was they're not doing enough to have these huge, huge tax breaks, not paying property taxes while the schools across the street are crumbling and rat infested and the streets have potholes and cracks. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. The Reverend Tracy Blackman is Associate General Minister for Justice and Local Church Ministries for the United Church of Christ. She is a deeply spiritual leader who brings faith to bear on issues of social justice and dignity for all people. She is someone who I have admired from afar and had the fortune to be close to on certain occasions. And Tracy, I just want to welcome you to State of Belief and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you have such an extraordinary history of living at the intersection of faith and justice. And I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of information about your backstory, where you come from, how you come to this uh, kind of extraordinary place of witness that you embody today. Well, sure. Um, That's a loaded question. Um, I am a pastor. I served people who live predominantly on the margins of, of society, whether that be because of race or sexuality or economics. Um, And so that has always been the context from which I live and speak. Um, And when you serve in such places, there are always crises and always traumas that have to be attended to. And I come to this work from the pastoral position of, of attending to those. So for me, that means not only being the prophetic, but the priestly depends on what is needed in the moment. Um, and serving in that way positioned me to uh, be a community voice when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I was doing this kind of work before that in different ways, mobilizing people to the polls and uh, making sure that we did our part to increase uh, access 
um, to food and to clothes and to things other people needed prior to that. But that particular uh, killing kind of catapulted me into a different platform just because I was in the streets there. So that's where most people know me from, but it really has been my life all my life. Right. That doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I I, I remember I was at Huffington Post at that time and I was, you know, I was interested in the religious response to the killing of of Michael Brown and was, um, and your name kept on coming up. Like, this is the person who's doing the work. She may not be able to talk to you right now because she's actually doing the work. Um, I'm just wondering how you're feeling today as you think about the passage of the act and and some of what it means for uh, the United Church of Christ and for people you uh, serve. Yes, and and I want to thank you for your partnership on that. Um, That was very helpful to us as well. You know, the United Church of Christ, we understand God to be creator of all humankind. Um, And in that role, we understand all human beings to be created in the image of God. Um, And so for us, you know, this is not a um, merely a position or a stance against this law. It is about the dignity and the humanity of all humankind. Um, And we've been on this side for a long time um, in that regard. The Respecting of Marriage Act certainly was critical um, in protecting the rights of same gender loving couples. Uh, And yet it still doesn't go far enough, right? (laughs) Um, So it moves us to a place of being able to say that if someone is married, that they would be protected. Um, But quite frankly, if we talk uh, honestly in this moment, the decisions of this Supreme Court have been very frightening in a lot of areas. Um, And LGBTQ rights is not uh, left out of that frightening context. And so we're positioned for the next round of battle quite frankly. Um, We we celebrate this. Grateful to have so many UCC ministers on the ground. Some of them were invited to the White House to witness the signing of the act. And certainly we want to take this moment and breathe and say celebrate. But we don't want to be so busy celebrating that we lose sight of what is really in front of us. What this Respect for Marriage Act does is say that if someone is married, you have to honor that, right? Um, but this Supreme Court is also having little ruminations of coming after marriage equality in a larger way, which would mean that federally marriages that exist would be protected. But in states like Missouri, where I live, people would not be able to marry whom they love. And how tragic is that, right? Yeah. Uh, with uh, all yeah, the yeah, things yeah. that we could be, you know, climate justice and taking care of the poor, with all the things we could be focusing on, um, that we would try to prohibit people from marrying the people that they love and receiving yeah. the benefits and the rights of marriage that are given to everyone else is really a tragic commentary yeah. on us yeah. as human beings and on us as a nation right now. And um, I'm celebrating 
but I'm also calling that out. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I wonder if you like part of part of what the the language that at Interfaith Alliance, one of the the, the language pieces that we want to we want to we want to flip that switch is like, what does religious freedom mean? Too long, people have meant, oh, religious freedom, that gives me the right to, you know, say whatever I want and do whatever I want as far as I say it's because of my faith. And I'm just wondering, like, for me, religious freedom, yes, you can actually believe whatever you want. And you could even say whatever you want. But you should not be able to do whatever you want when it infringes on the dignity of others. You know, it's meant that religious freedom should be used as you know, a bridge, not a bludgeon, you know, and, and what we're seeing is, uh, so I want to flip that script. I, I would love to hear how you think of religious freedom and what that means for the UCC. Thank you for that question, Paul. I mean, there, there has to be a consideration that one's freedom has boundaries when it begins to put other people in bondage, correct? So you are free to believe whatever you want to believe. You're just not free to make me comply with whatever you believe. That's that's the boundary of religious freedom. And I would suggest that anyone who uses scripture as a basis has a difficult time challenging that because God, God self does not even force people to do things or force people to believe things, um, even in scripture, right? And so it is not about trying to change what you believe, although I think what you believe is is grossly (laughs) misinterpreted and wrong. It is about preventing you from imposing your religious beliefs on me, right? And whether that's marriage equality, whether that's abortion rights, whether that's uh, trans rights, you don't get to say, that your understanding of God should be applied to my life. And my concern with this Supreme Court is that they are making decisions now based on their religious beliefs, which for me invalidates the court altogether, right? Absolutely, absolutely removes from them this standard of respect and honor that should be afforded the Supreme Court as a place of just deliberations, right? Right. And they're not right. hiding it. Yeah, so, it feels um, it it feels like a it's become an an arm for a thin slice of American religious belief that is yeah. being able to be imposed on the rest of us. Where do you think we should be putting our energies, and what 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 is the United Church of Christ thinking in in those terms? Well, a primary focus of the United Church of Christ's work remains racial justice. Uh, We believe, um, and I think rightfully so, that many of the issues that we face in this country have roots in racism. Um, You could say in white supremacy, but it's really more than that. It's about um, the disrespect and the disregard of non-white persons in this country. And so that for us is global work, not just national work. Uh, We will continue our work to help refugees and those who have been displaced. Uh, We'll continue our work to try to call into 
uh, view a rewriting R E W R I T I N G and R E R I G H T I N G, uh, a rewriting of history as people are trying to ban books and stop stories from being told. So racism is central to us and racism is central to us, not just from a prophetic standpoint, but from an introspective repentance and repair standpoint. So we're also trying to do that work, right? Of acknowledging that the church has often been the chief colonizer um, in places, not just around black and white, but also with indigenous people, right? And so, um, that will remain a focus of our work. Climate justice is really crucial for us. I read this T-shirt once, and I've been threatening to make them over again, that says, there is no planet B. Right? Mm. <laughs> there is no planet I B. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if we don't get this right, <laughs> then all the other things are going to pale in comparison. Um, and it is undeniable the greed and... Um, the disregard we've had for our our call to be good stewards over this creation um, and what that means for our children and our children's children um, is critically important. So we continue our work in that way. As you may know, we've uh, the United Church of Christ is the denomination from which the term environmental racism came. And we continue to do studies and work in that regard. Uh, we just instituted some environmental justice fellows uh, from younger people uh, who can help us all through the nation um, amplify this cry for paying attention to justice. And with the new legislation that allows for solar panels, we are working really hard to try to help our churches uh, um, take advantage of that as well. So race and climate justice are huge. And at this intersection that you already mentioned before uh, is always economics, right? So we have not raised the minimum wage in this country since 2009. Uh, and everything else has increased, but not the minimum wage. Um, and there comes a point where people cannot live on what they are making in this country. And um, that I would suggest plays into our issues of house unhoused people, yeah. uh, plays into our, our um, pet plays into our um, issues with, with not being able to find adequate workers. And if you ever doubted that that was an issue, just look at what happened during COVID when people began to get relief checks, right? It actually was more beneficial for so many workers to not work at all than and get the relief check than to go to work every day, right? right. So right. economic justice is really big for us, especially yeah. as neighborhoods are outpaced. The cost of living in neighborhoods is outpacing many of the residents there. They're being forced out. Right. Uh, I would say these are our three major yeah. issues. Of course, Roe v. Wade is huge for us. Uh, yeah. The United Church of Christ was advocating for abortion access and abortion rights before Roe v. Wade. Right. Um, and so this has been really a blow to see women's bodily autonomy under attack again, right. under attack at a time when we actually have generations who've not known life outside no. of Roe No, no, no. Uh, we now is... have to contend with that. Right. So these are the think... areas focusing. Yeah. And, and one of the things you said at the top, and I want to bring it back around, is that none of this is removed from the kind of pastoral work uh, 
that the UCC church does. It's because people, this is what affects people's lives. And yeah. if the church is going to be about anything, it's going to be about people's lives. These are their whole lives. And you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to deal with the spirit and, and good luck here. It's about yeah. the whole life. It's about what, you know, and it's about the whole body, the community. It's not it's not individualistic. It's the community. And so these, these issues are all all come back to how we live our lives in a more beautiful, just way in community with one another. And I just think like the mix between the, the spiritual, the pastoral, the prophetic is what, you know, I, I think is really just something I identify with you as a, as a leader and as someone who has exemplified this so much. So I want to thank you as uh, as a, as a fellow, um, traveler with Jesus and also uh, as a as you know as a as someone a, a fellow uh, citizen of this country who just really appreciates all you're doing for for all of us um, so thank you very much well thank you I I, I also want to say and that it's also about doing this work with humility understanding that we don't know everything there is to know about God. No one person does. When you trust people with their own lives, um, then you get a broader understanding and expansive view of God. I don't get to define other people. Um, and that's not the call of ministry and that's not the call of church. Um, the call of church is to open and welcome everyone into a sense of belonging. And sometimes we get confused by that because we think we are actually empowered to decide who's welcome or not. But it's not that. It is that we are called to declare what is already so, that you are already welcomed. You mm -hmm. already belong, right? You're already welcomed because we are all here by God's grace. And so I'm so grateful for the work that you and your organization is doing. And, and I have much hope um, that we will be successful in maintaining safety and security and belonging for LGBTQ people, um, particularly the tax on our trans children that's really keeping us up at night and for all the other issues we have to face together. Um, I think, thank so you thank so you much for, for the Reverend Tracy Blackman is Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ. The denomination has been a strong supporter of the Respect for Marriage Act. Reverend Blackman, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We need to take one last break and then some thoughts on the Respect for Marriage Act from Father James Martin. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Criminal organization, Trump organization. Yeah. We don't have to say alleged anymore. Trump's Not alleged criminal Trump's organation. Teen. I think 17. Was it 17? 17 was the number Guilty, guilty, they guilty. They found two more. Get used to it, MAGA dip. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Just the beginning. On January 6th, committee going to make criminal referrals. Yes! Unfortunately. He sent subpoenas yeah. out to all the states. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes! Oh, Jack ain't messing. Jack does not play. Yeah. <laughs>
the yes. Trump organization is set up in order to shield, like purposefully, in order to shield right. Trump and his family from this sort of thing. Yes. But it's a start. Yes, it certainly is. It is. It's the, oh, who's our uh, legal lad? Uh, Harry Lippman said convictions of Trump org have to embolden Bragg to go after Trump on the renewed investigation of the Stormy Daniels fraud. I mean, I, what does Glenn Kirshner always say? Someone take the maiden legal voyage. Yeah. Well, Alvin Bragg, I don't think, is the most courageous. But... You know, whatever gets us through yeah, the night, whatever gets, gets us, us there. Yeah. It's like, okay, if this is... By any means necessary. Right. If this is the thing that, you know, makes you have to go, okay, look, he is a private citizen. There is no, none of these rules. There's no bill bar. This is a private criminal. He's not yes. bulletproof. He's just managed to avoid taking the blame yeah. for this many years. Yeah. So do guess, Stormy Daniels says, don't blow it this time. <laughs> I was waiting all night to do that joke. Because it's... It's a little old. And it doesn't sound like that. It does nope. not sound like that. If it sounds like that, you're doing it wrong. I'm yes. Sorry. Well, what does it sound like with a tiny orange mushroom? Does it doesn't sound like that either. No? It really doesn't make a noise. Like what? what? It, no, it can. Well, yeah, if you're sloppy. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. Coming up on New Year's weekend, you'll hear an in-depth conversation with Father James Martin, a prophetic Catholic voice on inclusivity and respect for all people in the life of the church and one of the most spiritual leaders I know. Getting together to record that interview this week, I asked Father Jim for his reactions to the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act just the day before. I wanted to include his timely remarks on this week's State of Belief Radio. The signing of the Respect for Marriage Act, I'm just curious how you, as a person who works with a lot of people who um, have are, are same-sex, have same-sex relationships and uh how that how that landed with you? I think for a lot of LGBTQ people, as you know, um, it was a source of joy, but more, I think, a source of relief. There were a lot of uh, uh, same-sex couples uh, who I knew who were really worried uh, about uh, some of, um, I guess it was Justice uh, Thomas's uh, comments uh, in, in Dobbs, I, I suppose. I'm not a legal scholar. And I had a friend who was thinking of leaving the country because he was so upset. So I think, I think really relief. Um, is is, is yeah. how it landed with a lot of the people I know. What about you? What was yeah? What was your no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, relief was absolutely the way uh, Brad and I felt experienced this. I'm just curious. Um, obviously, the Catholic Church is not going to be um, uh, acknowledging same-sex uh, uh, couples, and and you know, I think what was good about the you know is, is that there was space for people to have their own beliefs and their own. Um, practices. I'm sure you're not able to perform same-sex marriages, but I know that people who are in relationships with you feel your love and support. Is, I mean, how, how are you able to convey that love and support in a way that obviously doesn't break your um, responsibilities as a priest in the church, but offers them that kind of support? What a great question. I, I think by recognizing the love that exists between them, I think that's the most important thing. I have a lot of friends who are married gay couples, and you know, you, you included. And uh, one of the things I like to share with uh, people who might be 
suspect of those relationships is just stories about uh, gay couples. I often tell the story of uh, a gay couple I knew. Um, the fellow's name was Carlos. Uh, he was a Eucharistic minister, a lector, a spiritual director, and, um, and a hospital chaplain at Sloan Kettering uh, here in New York City. And he was with his partner, Jim, for years and years. Carlos got sick uh, with cancer, and Jim cared for him for years uh, through surgeries and radiation and chemo and all this. And, and I say to people, you know, is that love? Right? Is, is that a form of love? And it, it's very hard for people not to say, yes, it's a, it's a form of love. So I think one of the things I like to do is just to reveal that to people, uh, people in the church especially, and say, we need to look at this as love and we need to consider this as love. And, uh, you know, and some people, particularly uh, in Germany and Western Europe, are saying we need to recognize it as love, right? Bless these same sex. Within communities. the church, within the church. Yeah, I mean, within the it's Catholic still, church. That's true. Um, there, there's, uh, there's some um, sort of stuff going on in Germany in particular, uh, where the German bishops are talking about possibilities of recognizing or blessing same-sex unions. Now, this gets into kind of technical Catholic stuff, but the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith has said that that's not permissible. But in this run-up to what's called the synod, this kind of worldwide meeting of the church, uh, there are a lot of people that are asking for that. And so, you know, we'll see where that conversation goes. Mm. You know, I just, you know, I want to uh, get into some other um, topics, but I do want to recognize right now the role that you play in allowing people who are so deeply committed to their Catholic faith and Catholic tradition, and you're giving them space. Now, obviously, you're not, you know, performing marriages, but you're giving them space to feel like someone like you who has such standing in the church is also recognizing their love. I just feel like that's really, it's a, it's a beautiful stance. It's a brave stance. And, um, and I'm sure it has, is life giving to the countless couples that, you know, I hope so. Uh, and I hope it's also just recognizing LGBTQ people as the beloved children of God that they are. So, you know, even, even deeper than uh, people are in relationships, just saying that these people are, are loved by God and are, are fully part of the church and really need to be listened to. That's one of the things I really try to encourage Catholic leaders to do is to just listen to their experiences rather than thinking of them as categories or stereotypes. And, you know, Paul, as you know, we've known each other for a long time. This is a relatively new ministry for me, only about five or six years old. Uh, and so, you know, I'm careful not to challenge any church teaching, but within those boundaries uh, to say um, that we need to listen to their experiences and Treat them as people, you know, through whom God is working. What is God revealing to us through the LGBTQ community now? And I think it's quite a bit. That is a really beautiful thing. And it's uh, really important uh, to mention in the context of there's, uh, the passing of the Respect for Marriage Act that, as you say, offered relief and uh, a sense of full dignity to so many of us, uh, uh, myself included. So I really appreciate those comments. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. 
never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.